I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Daniel. He has multifocal epilepsy. Let's talk about it. All righty. Well, we are uh, in studio hanging out with our, our new pal, Daniel, all the way from beautiful Prince Edward Island. And uh, I say British Columbia. Um, why? That's on the license plate. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Wait, the license plate says all the way from beautiful. No, it says beautiful British Columbia. <laughs> We're off to a great start. What is, um, what is New Hampshire's? <laughs> live free or plate? die. Yeah, that's a sick one. Yeah. That is sick. Yeah. Live free or die. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good one. What's Prince Edward? I think Prince Edward Islands, uh, Islands is like... Um, just a bunch of potatoes. It's, uh, I think it says it? no plastic bottles. No, please. it just says come come here and pay to leave. <laughs> right. There we go. There you go. Um, I like that a lot. <laughs> so we're hanging with Daniel and uh, guys, we're going to be talking about <laughs> epilepsy. But also, uh, so I, I mean, we've talked about epilepsy before. I'm, uh-huh. I'm, I'm kind of like familiar, sort of. Um, but there's a, there's a word here that I'm not so familiar with um, that I'm sure we're getting into. It's multifocal epilepsy. Daniel, I'm just going to kick right off the bat. What the fuck is that? So multifocal epilepsy means that a seizure can happen at any place in the brain. Whoa. And it it's actually pretty scary because when multifocal epilepsy goes untreated, it means that it can have a really scary, it can come out in really scary ways. Like it can come out verbally or it can come out that the person can have tremors or they can sometimes drop to the ground. Um, it, oh, wow. It's not a one shot deal of this person is going to have their seizure in this type of way. Right. So, so, oh, right, so right. somebody who has uh, somebody who does not have multifocal seizure, seizure uh, epilepsy, um, they might have like a predictable, a more predictable um, experience of what their seizure might be. So like a, like a doctor would be, or you, you might be able to treat it more easily or you, or that person might be able to go, you know, I know that I might avoid certain types of things because doing that thing and getting a seizure is a, is a big no, no well, yeah, there, with this. You, it's, it's, it it's sounds, all over the place. There's it like, sounds kind of, um, it sounds really dangerous, but it also sounds kind of exciting. Yeah, right. You know, totally. Like, like ooh, you, what's going to happen you, next? You're rolling yeah. the dice. You yeah. never know. How yeah. do you feel about what Brian just said, <laughs> Daniel? Does it, is it exciting? Well, it's it's one of the hardest types of epilepsy to treat. So it's exciting for a while. But then when you get to the end of the road and the doctor's telling you, uh, we don't know what to do now because you are on the last type of pill we have to treat this. Mm. Yeah. So so I guess like th- this is something we've never really covered on the show, I guess. But there's there's many different types of seizures, right? I, I've I've actually seen like I've seen a few different types of seizures in my, in my lifetime. Um, I think the one that most people like think of when they think of seizures is, is the, is the like tonic clonic 
seizure. So someone falling mm-hmm. and, and like writhing and it's like, quick, stick something in their mouth, which, which you're not supposed to do, I guess. Um, M&M Minis container. <laughs> I gotta say, <laughs> I feel like that. I feel like that. Whatever that PSA commercial was when we were kids, it really fucked. I feel like probably it re- fucked some people. I feel up. like it really fucked up my ability to understand yeah. what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to. Yeah, do. Yeah, I didn't learn anything from that. Actually, it definitely made it more confusing. Because I feel like what they did, I can't remember, but I feel like what they did is they did what you're not supposed to do, and then they were like, "Don't ever do that." It's but you, then a lot of people were just like, oh, "I guess that's what I do." Yeah, because the point <laughs> is, is like the thing that they say is like they're like quick, put this in his mouth. And it's like, right. they, they emphasize that point, but then they're like, this is what you're not supposed to do. Like, no, don't do that. But like the thing that's memorable is putting is put in the thing, the thing in his mouth. Right. Which I'm not even sure now saying that back. If that's how it happened, if that's the right thing or wrong thing. <laughs> I have no idea. I think, I think in general, don't put anything in anyone's mouth ever. Um, unless <laughs> they are consenting and want no, it in their mouth never. and they're <laughs> fully awake and it's some sort of sexual thing. That's fine. <laughs> But with a seizure, definitely, definitely don't just don't. Um, but I, I would like to like just kind of go through um, just just for, just to like give, I guess, uh, the three of us awareness before we get into this like seizure talk, um, what the different sort of symptoms during a seizure can can look like. Because, again, this isn't really something we've talked about. And I think I feel like it's one of those things that not a lot of people are. Super aware of. Um, so you have you have. uh from what I'm gathering here from epilepsy.com, which I'm guessing is probably the most legit source of epilepsy you can get. I mean, they got the name. Unless some weirdo just bought the uh, domain name and just went to town on a bunch of disinformation. But uh, you've got generalized onset seizures, right? So with, the, with that comes motor symptoms. So like I said earlier, motor symptoms may, may include like, um, like jerking, rhythmic sort of jerking movements. Uh, like when Taylor what, dances. That's what a, a clonic it, it means. Hey. Uh, muscles becoming weak or limp, which is atonic. Muscles becoming tense or rigid, which is tonic. So then when you have tonic-clonic, you're getting tense rigidity with the the shaking. These do all sound like different versions of drunk Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you have epileptic spasms, so body flexes and extends repeatedly. Then you have non-motor symptoms. So these are usually called absence seizures. And these can be... Uh, typical or atypical absence seizures. Um, absence seizures can also have brief twitches, uh, which can affect specific parts of the body or just the eyelids, which is very interesting. Kind of like a super low key, like almost like if like if someone was having one, you'd think like possession. Are you are you are you being possessed? Are you winking at me? Is this a flirt? <clears throat> What's going on here? Kind of like it looks like <laughs> they're having a stroke. <laughs> yeah, right. So. Stroke, flirting, it's the same, same. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and then you have the focal onset seizures. So uh, that also comes with motor symptoms, non-motor symptoms. Um, and then there's unknown onset seizures, which, again, they come with their own list of non-motor seizures and there's motor a, seizures. There's a lot there's of a ways lot. to seize. There, there are a lot. Um, I, so I guess that to throw it to you, Daniel, um, in, in, the, in the span of your, your lifetime of, of, of having epilepsy, uh, which I guess has been well over... 20 years um mm-hmm. what kinds of seizures have you have you run up against what kinds of symptoms have you shown during seizures in the past i have had almost all of those kinds of seizures and the scariest ones are the ones that i have shown up with actually in the last couple of years where i have actually had full-blown conversations with people who aren't even there 
and I don't even know that I'm having the conversations. Whoa. So no it would seem like you're having some type of like psych- psychotic episode. Episode? Yeah. Or wow. like I will I will scream, I will start cursing, I will whatever because mm. one of the areas in my brain that uh I have seizures that's near the amygdala, which is where all of your fear-based symptoms are and I would have woken up in the epilepsy monitoring unit and screaming and cursing at the nurses and I would have had no memory of it. And then of course the, then like 10 minutes later, everything would have been just great. And the nurse would have been like, Oh my gosh, Daniel, you had a seizure. And, I, and I'd be arguing with, no, I didn't have a seizure. What are you talking about? And the nurse wow. would have been like, Oh yeah, definitely. It's, you know, we captured it on the EEG and we captured it on the camera and everything, <sighs> or that would have happened several times during the night. No that, memory whatsoever. That, I, that sounds crazy because you said when you sounds said like possession. Ep- yeah. But when you also said epilepsy monitoring mm-hmm. unit, I, because I was curious when you said like at the beginning, Oh, that's when seizures happen in all different parts of you experience them in all different parts of your brain. I was like, man, how do they know? Like, how do you know that? So how do you find out that the, like where the seizures are taking place and how do you end up in an epilepsy monitoring unit? So usually what happens, like in in my case, I was diagnosed with epilepsy when I was four years old. I had a tonic-clonic seizure on a a family vacation in Montreal, and I was diagnosed with epilepsy there, but I didn't actually get fully diagnosed with what kind of epilepsy I had until I was in my 20s when I was a candidate for brain surgery, and I came back to Halifax. And I went into the monitoring unit because for years, they actually thought the type of seizures I was having were night terrors, which they weren't at all. Oh, wow. Because I was was having them every single night and like into the days I was having those absent seizures and all of that stuff. And finally, somebody said, get him to Halifax. We need to get this fully diagnosed. So I had... Um, a deep brain EEG, which they put all these different uh, EEG um, stimulators into my brain, which I have about 16 different holes in my head now from them. But that's how they figured out exactly where the brain dysplasia was and figured out what part to take out and what kind of epilepsy I had after I had a PET scan. Wow. Crazy. So they, they just thought that like they were like, oh, Daniel's just a scaredy cat. Like I don't Daniel think that's has, what night terrors are. Daniel has basically, yeah. <laughs> Daniel has really bad night te- be- really bad night terrors or bad dreams, but night terrors. <laughs> and then also is experiencing those those experiences during the day, but Daniel's just scared, not Daniel's yeah. having a seizure. And it was affecting my schooling. It was affecting everything. And we we lived at in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, in a big two story house. And I was sleepwalking at night. Oh, so wow. yeah. that's why they thought it might be night terrors. So when you were diagnosed at four uh, with epilepsy, but then the 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 like the the dialed in epilepsy diagnosis didn't come until you know ten fifteen years later or more. Um, what did was was there no connection between what these like quote unquote night terrors were and your epilepsy? Was your epilepsy looked at as something that was like a completely separate experience from 
these night terrors? So the night terrors really started after I hit puberty. So what they figured was that the epilepsy changed into night terrors and then morphed into something again. So when I was four, what they did was they just threw every single epilepsy drug they could at me for as long as they could. So they started with the oldest ones first. And then when they stopped working, they changed to another one and changed to another one and again and again. And when I hit puberty, it became worse because the drugs started not working again. Mm. And they just kept changing and kept changing as long as they could. I, I would love to. Um, so, you know, we were talking about this before before uh, we started recording. But but Daniel, you applied to be on the show ages ago. Um, and and, you know, you were something like the 2000th person to apply to be on the show out of out of a list of over 4000. Now we're slowly chipping away at this thing. But you had you had submitted a really um, detailed application, and and in in particular, you were kind of listing all of the experiences that you had since you were um, diagnosed after that accident that happened in in Montreal. Um, and one of the things that really struck me was about the way that you were being treated for your seizures as a teenager. Um, in particular, the the large amount of barbiturates that they they had you on to control the seizures. Can you take us back to that time? Um, like what were, what were the medications they were using and what kind of, what kind of impact did that medication have on you as a teen, as you were going through, you know, one of the most like foundational social periods of your life? Um, I think one of the ones that I can remember the most was Tegretol and just a lot of the older epilepsy medications, just they make you really depressed and they make you really question your social skills. And when you're growing through that period of your life, when you have so many uh, changes happening with your body and you're looking to make friends and, you know, you're looking at your grades and you're looking at all that stuff, you just feel like crap. Mm. And the neurologist is looking just to keep your seizures at bay. They're mm. not looking at what's happening around you. So it was a really, really bad time. That is like a real, that's a really interesting um, sort of like microcosm of just the, of just a, a, a gigantic issue in medicine in general, medicine and healthcare mm. in how, in how things get compartmentalized down into like, we're looking at this and the scope of what we're treating and the side effects or issues that come along with quote unquote, effectively treating this thing is not, Yeah. sometimes it is, sometimes it is. I mean, like, you know, you have the experience with CF clinic and whatnot. I'm sure yeah. that there is things out there, but like being able to look at that bigger picture um, mm. It's just kind of like a flaw in in like Western healthcare in general. I think what, a lot of times. What what is the goal of of treating um, epilepsy? Like, is, is the goal to not to prevent you from having seizures, and that's like sort of what they're what the main focus or what they're trying to do is? Well, I guess the goal of treating anybody with epilepsy is zero seizures, but that's not always possible. So usually, what happens is. Almost nobody who's on medication for epilepsy is on one medication. So you're usually on several. And 
usually from what I've heard from talking to many people is the side effects of medication are almost worse than having mm -hmm. seizures themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I can't speak for everybody. I'll speak for myself on that. But growing up, it definitely was, whether it be behavioral side effects or physical side effects or whatever, it definitely was a lot of the time. Mm. When, and, when and is like, actually I, happening with epilepsy and, mm. and why, like when you have, I mean, I'm familiar with like uh, at seeing what, you know, especially in pop culture, like what a seizure looks like. Um, but other than, you know, seeing somebody go through this like state or when, you know, when they're having those tonic clonic seizures and they're like shaking or whatever, um, what, what is sort of happening in their body? Uh, is, is there like damage that's being caused that you really want to prevent from happening while the seizure is happening? Or is it just the, the physical experience of having the seizure in the moment that's happening at that time? If that makes sense. Right. Like, like, are you, are it's you basically asking like damage that's being caused? Right. Yeah. Sorry. Continue. Yeah. I was, I was trying to like get, get clear. Like, like you're wondering if you have a seizure in the process of that seizure, there's like a, a, a potential for brain damage um, or is it more so like just, you know, having seizure fucking sucks. And there's experience. also, there's also yeah. a bunch of dangers physically. That, that, yeah. 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 I mean, because a seizure is not the same as a stroke. So a right. seizure is not like controlling the blood through your brain. And if you have a seizure, it's going to cut that off and you're going to lose oxygen and potentially mm -hmm. have some kind of fatal thing happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is something called status epilepticus. If somebody is having a seizure for longer than a certain amount of time, mm. you should call the paramedics. But I mean, that has also changed. You you really should call the paramedics if somebody is having a seizure longer than 30 seconds. Right. Okay. And then at that point, when the paramedics come, the person who is with the person having the seizure can say, no, you know, I've seen this person having the seizure. They're not hurt. They've been talking to me. I've had an active conversation with them. They've said they don't want to go to the hospital. Because mm -hmm. another thing, people need to know that a lot of people who have epilepsy don't have the money to go to the hospital, don't mm -hmm. have the money to pay for an ambulance to take them to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And that's happened to me several times. When I used to live in Toronto, people would call the ambulance automatically when it, when I had a seizure. And I'd say like, no, don't call the ambulance. I don't have $160 to pay mm -hmm. to go two blocks. <laughs> yeah. And, and what, yeah. and what is the, True. what is in your understanding, the, 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 like the underlying um, thing that's happening during a, during, during, uh, uh, during an epileptic seizure, is it, is it a chain? Is it like a, a flicker in the electrical activity? Is a is it a surge in the electrical activity? Do you what's your understanding of like what's what's happening in the brain when it occurs? It really depends on what kind of seizure it is. Oh, okay, because the it could be like a, a surge causes different types of movements, like the jerking movements or the oh. like a. a a larger type of seizure where you see the people having the tonic clonic motions. Those yeah. are different types of electrical activity too. Mm. I'm, I'm curious about um, just because we talked, we, we touched on um, medication there. And I just want to preface this question with like, this comes from zero understanding, no studies looked at uh, or data understood whatsoever. Just something that I've like heard in the public 
sort of zeitgeist of epilepsy. I feel like that's a general place a lot of our questions come from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I just don't, but I, I want to be I want to be mindful that like this could we know nothing. Like, this could be uh, this could be you know Daniel. You might go, oh wow, yeah, I totally I know about that. Whatever, or it might be like this is total mumbo jumbo, and nobody should have any business putting any of this into into practice. Um, I've heard a lot about I've heard little anecdotes about about CBD and epilepsy. Ooh. Have you ever have you ever heard anything around CBD and using it for um for for epilepsy treatment or is that something that's like never come across your your landscape? I have not come across it myself. Like I I know a couple of people who do, but the people who I know that use it feel like crap because it's it's not tested enough in Canada to use it medically, like mm-hmm. right for epilepsy anyway. Like the places that it's tested to use it for for epilepsy is in the states. Okay. Yeah, I remember I remember like there was a lot of talk about CBD and epilepsy prior to weed becoming legal in Canada. And I think it was used I, I think it was used as like a a sort of speaking point for advocates. Okay. Interesting. Um, and I don't, you know, again, like I can't speak to the efficacy of it, but, but I feel like it was more, it more so generated that kind of talk because they were like, come on, let's get the shit. Like, let's get the shit yeah. rolling because yeah. it, you know, it, it saved this five-year-old girl's life or what have you. Um, I, I, I want to come back to your, your personal experience, um, especially as a youth, uh, Daniel, um, but but just to just to come before I do um, that point about your question, Brian, about like why is it that we want to treat epilepsy? Sounds um, like the treatment sucks. And, yeah, and you know what's happening. <laughs> yeah, sucks, but like only in a short period of time or in a window. Yeah. So so the the one part that I that I feel like like people might not really think about very often, and this will lead me into my question about your your experience as a youth, but um, you know. People die from epileptic events in in a myriad of different ways. So you could imagine, you know, a 14-year-old girl who's in the middle of eating a meal and has a has a seizure and chokes to death on her food. Or um, you know, a family on a vacation and they're they're, you know, out boating and a kid's tubing and, you know doesn't have a life jacket on and they have a seizure out in the water and they drown. Like it's like, these are the types of things where it's like you are having seizures in moments that put your body and your life at risk. We, we are constantly doing things about, you know, about our day where if all of a sudden we lost physical control of our body and we started to violently writhe, we could die and it it could be very bad. So, you know, a, a, a great example of this would be driving a car which I'm assuming, I don't know, but I'm assuming, Daniel, that's not something that you were able to do when you were 16, uh, you know, to go nope. out and get your driver's license. Is that is that the case? I've never had it. Yeah, and yeah, still not to this day. That's, yeah, that's what I figured. So like when you, when you, um, when you were going through that sort of stage in your life um, as a, as, you know, as a teen, when like kids are getting their driver's license and, and, you know, it's like there's, there's, there's like 
parties happening on the island somewhere in some fucking backwoods like farm uh, <laughs> as you do on Prince Edward Island. Like, how did it affect your social life um, growing up, especially like in high school? It really kept me back from a lot of things because there was always that thing of like, oh my gosh, don't do this because of the underlying factor. But I have always been, and I mean, my family has been really good about this of you are Daniel, you were not Daniel with epilepsy. Mm -hmm. You are not your illness. And I've loved that, honest to God. But I mean, there are members of my family, you know, my poor grandmother, God rest her soul, she always was so worried constantly of, oh, my God, Daniel, don't go swimming. Oh, my God, Daniel, be careful. You know, you're so far away. When I was in culinary school and I did my internship out in British Columbia, she was like, oh, my God, you know, this poor, you know, she was a very Acadian Catholic woman. <laughs> oh, my God, Daniel, if you go swimming out on that lake, my God, don't go alone or you're going to drown. <laughs> great act, great like, little accent change there that was good. Subtle. I'm like Na yeah. Nana no I won't drown I've taken my pills I've yeah. taken everything well my god you're going to drown I'll, yeah. I'm going to say a prayer to Saint Anne so that you won't drown Okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. what a sweetheart Is there, I, I, I am like I'm I'm kind of curious like around that period of uh, that you know at that period of your life um how like how how common how common were seizures? I mean, I, you know, maybe this is maybe this is a, a, a really grand question that you can't can't uh, grandma question that you can't answer. <laughs> um, but how many seizures do you think you've had in your, in this in the span of your lifetime? Thousands. Whoa. Oh, okay, so like we're talking uh, super common occurrence for you throughout your life. Oh, and yeah, and the reason why I say that was because when I was a teenager. I was having them so often, like every single night, we couldn't even count them. I oh, was wow. waking up feeling like I didn't even sleep. And that's why, could because at that point, we didn't know what they were. And then when we finally got the diagnosis in Halifax that, yes, indeed, these were seizures and not night terrors, we looked back at everything. And when the doctor looked back at, you know, all the case notes and all everything that the other doctors had taken he said this is why during high school your marks were lower you know mm. you weren't feeling well a lot of the times you felt no droopy and dreary and you didn't feel good all the time because you weren't sleeping because you were having seizures every wow. single night did that like reveal to you like or did yeah. you did you know in your heart of hearts that that was mm. what was going on or was that like a big like holy shit that's why. Well, I knew in my heart of hearts that it had to be something with my epilepsy. But when you've got doctor after doctor after doctor saying, well, we've seen nothing on this MRI. We've seen nothing on this EEG. We've seen nothing on this CAT scan. We Like you start to just think you're, you're crazy. Like yeah. you start to think, well, oh, my God, do do I have epilepsy why am i taking all these pills why are they not working and then eventually you just say okay well this is my life now like nothing's gonna ever change hi i'm jesse crookshank jesse crookshank i host the number one comedy podcast called phone a friend girl 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. And did you find out? Did you find out that? When they actually gave you that proper diagnosis, was it was it a light bulb moment for also for the doctors to go, like this is why the the drugs we were giving you weren't working because these drugs don't treat the epilepsy that you've got. Well, what I found is that it takes somebody, whether it's a parent or, you know, somebody on the outside to do that advocacy work, whether it's to go on an online chat room or an online news group or something to speak with another parent and say, well, no, no, we talked to this doctor and this is what they said to have that light bulb moment. Sometimes it's not a doctor in the Maritimes or a family doctor or whatever, because Mm. all doctors are trained in different specialties. Mm. So it might be for me in my particular case, it was my neurologist in Toronto that said, if you ever want to work in culinary again, you have to get brain surgery because this is what's holding you back. And the specialty place that you need to go is Halifax because we can't do it here. That was what set me on my path to figuring out what this was. But if I was never in Toronto, if I didn't leave the Maritimes, I would never have found that out. I'm I'm really curious about the the brain surgery um bit, but but before we like get get into that, um I'm I'm really really curious about night terrors and what your experience was like. Like, do you remember? Would you sort of? quote unquote, wake up in the morning and remember the experiences that you had? Or were you just waking up um, really tired and not really knowing what happened? In the morning, I would just feel so tired, like I didn't have a good night's sleep. But I can remember small pieces of when they would happen. But For me, it would just feel like, okay, you're awake, you've got two parents looking at you. And they think you're having a seizure mm-hmm. or having this night terror, or they don't know what it is. And they can't call the doctor because the doctor's going to say it's a night terror. We can't do anything about it. So why are you bringing him to the emergency room? Mm-hmm. We, we've seen him for this before. So basically at that point we were living in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia. So there's no specialists there. Mm-hmm. So we just continue going on this cycle. Was there like um, specific like imagery or things that you recall seeing like poltergeists or like um, or like spiders or something? Like that? Yeah, but I he remember. wasn't he wasn't having night terrors. He was no, having no, seizures. No, I know, I know. But he said that no, it was no. next to you said that it was next to the amygdala, or like the fear center. So I was wondering if it was like triggering you to experience something that was similar to a night terror, which is why they were assuming that that's that's what it was. But you you weren't like it. You weren't seeing anything like particularly like scary or anything like that. No, we'll see. At that point, when I was having the seizures, it wasn't back there. At that point, it was in my frontal lobe. So that was a different kind of seizure. Okay. Man. Brian, I've got a question for you. Sure. Does talking about seizures and the the experience of like coming out of one 
reminds you of the dumbest thing that you and I 100%. used to do to each other? I've already thought about that. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it. Because you, you're just ashamed of it. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Is it when you like when you guys were just like super into docking? What are you What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it wasn't said, docking, but I mean, I might ra- I might rather people think it was docking yeah. because that's how dumb it did was. Did you guys used yeah. to choke each other out? Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. We all did that. Uh, everybody did that. I know, but it's so dumb. It is dumb. Yeah, it is really I, so I, dumb. I I I stupidly said who used to do it to me. Who I I, I let them do it. Yeah, but they're uh, they're they're like a big lawyer in the states now. It was like one of the first episodes we ever did, and I got in trouble for saying his name. <laughs> well, yeah. So we used to do that. We used to do that. We didn't stupid. we didn't choke each other. We did this thing where you'd press on you'd you'd like you'd exhale yeah, deeply hyper- and yeah, yeah. press on their chest. Yeah, don't don't say what it is. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, it, we right. don't we don't want yeah. all the all the all the fifteen year olds that listen to our that's podcast right. going out and fucking so choking each other out I mean, just for yeah. fun it was interesting because it, it would it would change your state of consciousness it would knock you out and you would experience what it'd be like to be out cold and it was yeah. a trip and it and to like change your yeah it was and, it and was particularly <laughs> when you came back from it and you were like frozen like physically frozen but like your vision would come back first and there'd be somebody yeah. standing over you and you couldn't really move yet and meanwhile, this fucking poor kid's out there having seizures without anybody touching his chest and, and we going, were, you we lucky were just fuckers. Do, we were just trying to <laughs> empathize. Yeah, it was all about yeah, just yeah, trying yeah. to empathize. Yeah, right. We were just like, we know people, like, <laughs> like as 15-year-olds, we were having this conversation. We're like, I'm like, Taylor, you know, we know that people experience something like this. Why don't we go through this ourselves so that we can better relate and connect? He said that. Them. Brian yeah. said that. Yeah. Yeah, and, then, yeah. and then you're like, you know what? This, is, this really sucks. Let's move on to docking. Um, <laughs> Which uh, is way more enjoyable, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> uh, Daniel. Um, okay. So, I, I mean, you know, like. I think I think we've got the we've got the sort of gist of the fact that you've been dealing with like like what sounds like really severe epilepsy um, for, for the majority of your life. And obviously it had major effects on you socially. It had, you know, it, it was, it was this thing that was happening that people thought it was something completely different. And, and it's just chugging along as you're growing up and it doesn't go away. Um, you know, there, we still, there's no cure for epilepsy yet. Um, and you even, you even go as far as having a brain surgery, which we haven't gotten into yet, uh, really like, like picked apart yet, but how did this, you know, when you graduate high school, you get out into like the, 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 the world of, you know, like diving into a profession and, and, and trying to make a living. Um, how did this affect you there? I mean, is this, is, it was, was the surgery a, 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 a basic like answer to being able to live a, a normal life so that you could hold down a job? Like I'm thinking of like you as a, a chef, <laughs> With juggling knives, knives and, <laughs> and holding pots full of hot steaming oil and and you know like the fear of having a seizure there would be horrendous so like how did how did epilepsy kind of affect your your ability to make a living well see once i had been through high school and into culinary school my epilepsy, I thought I had a hold on my epilepsy because I was only having seizures at night at that point. So I was like, okay, I got this. As long as I take my meds and don't drink excessively and, you know, try and eat healthy and that, I'm good. But then everything caught up with me as soon as I moved to Toronto because you can't work 12-hour days and have seizures at night because... As soon as that happens, then you start missing work. 
And as mm. soon as you start missing work in the culinary field, they think you're drunk, high, or you just want a day off. And then you start getting fired. And that started to be the vicious cycle. Mm. And that happened probably 10 or 15 times up there. And that got me into a lot of financial difficulty very quickly. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's gotta be super rough. And, 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 and also it's like, you know, like I'm trying to put myself in your shoes, but, but, and I've had, you know, I've had those like low points with, with cystic fibrosis, but it's the, those low points are, are really like drawn out, you know? So mm -hmm. it's like, oh, okay. You know, I, I got hospitalized this year for two weeks straight but then it, I don't have that experience again for like two years, you know? So it's like, I can, I can maintain some sort of consistency throughout my, whatever it is that I'm trying to work on or, or, you know, become proficient at. Um, but to constantly have this sort of setback, I just, I can only imagine that that's extremely disheartening and like, you know, let alone what it's doing to your mental health, you know, like how it's affecting you on. Well, on your, I was, I was just going to get there because yeah. I, I sank into such a depression while Ooh. I was up there. And I mean, this is before, you know, Uber Eats and all that stuff was so proficient in the world. It had just started up in Toronto. So I was ordering all my meals in. I was not leaving my apartment for anything. I was staying inside for months at a time until somebody from the Maritimes got on the call with me and said, you know, get your ass out of bed go downtown, join a yoga class, something, because if you don't, you are going to die up there. And I will not see that happen. Mm. And I did. And thankfully got up, got, got another job, thankfully. But then it happened again. And I lost that job. And then I went to see my doctor and my doctor at that point said, we have no choice, but to, if we, we, we can keep switching you meds, but it's going to keep happening this way. And you can either leave the culinary profession and go to school for something else, or you can get brain surgery. And at that point, the reason why I had put the brain surgery off was because I worked with my hands. And he said, well, he said, you can trust us to do our job or you can not do your job. Ooh, wow. And I, I just said, okay. I said, I'm willing to, you know, put it out there and let's go. And he said, well, make a plan and we will contact the doctors in Halifax. We'll put in a referral and we'll get you there. Ooh, wow. And I packed up my stuff with $50 in my bank account and with a lot of help from family made my way back to the Maritimes. Ooh. How long, uh, how long from that time until you ran out of the $50 <laughs> yeah, one tank of gas yeah, yeah, like <laughs> two, two hours later <clears throat> um, until until you uh until you uh had sir until you had surgery do you know what surprisingly and this almost never happens um it was less than six months Ooh, well, that's pretty good mm -hmm. okay now you have the surgery which brain surgery is rocket science. Um, so you have yes. brain surgery. <laughs> what do they do? You know, are they going in there? Is it, are we talking like the, are we talking like the, uh, the, you know, Dr. Penfield, I smell burnt toast. Like you're awake and they're poking the brain and shit. Or are they, are they putting you under cutting you open and just like 
taking out a chunk of your brain? So the first surgery that I had, I had the depth electrodes put in in November of 2014. And I went over and I, I'm my grandmother and I went, went over there first and uh, met this wonderful woman, Susan Rahe. She was the uh, director of the epilepsy unit over there. And uh, she got us in, made us feel so comfortable with the whole process, told us exactly what was going to happen from start to finish. And she said, look, we're going to do the depth electrodes first. They're going to find out where the problem is. Then they're going to do uh, the second surgery and, you know, hopefully everything will be okay. We'll decrease your meds and everything will be good. And within from November, I had the first surgery with the depth electrodes. They found out where the dysplasia was, which was just behind this eye here. And then in January of 2015, I had the big surgery, which they cut all the way from here. You can still kind of see the scar. They went from this ear right around here to this ear, and they pulled everything down and cut in, and then they cut out the dysplasia right here. Whoa, crazy. Wow. So they basically cut like a like a sort of half moon shape, crescent shape from one ear to the other ear over like the top of your head, and then pulled your skin sort of down like towards your eyebrows and then went in and, and corrected yeah. or whatever the dysplasia that was happening. Wow. Mm -hmm. What That's kind of, crazy. what kind of scar do you have? Do you like, is it, uh, is it under your hairline? You can't really see it. Anything on zoom. Yeah. It's, it's under my hairline. You can't see it cause my hair is a little bit long right now, but it goes from here right to here. Right. Like a set of headphones. And so it goes it, all it start, the way. It's like, it's like sideburns all the way up a, across and then down to the other sideburn. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, so, so like it, you know, again, we, like I always have this thought about, about the, the, the two biggies for me are brain surgery and hearts or open heart surgery. Like those are the two that I, I just think are like the, the sort of, uh, like when you're signing the form before where they say like, there are some risks with yeah, this surgery. Those are the, yeah, those are the risks. Like, like when I go in for like, like, like sinus surgery, I'm like, okay, well, you just whatever. Sign it and you're but like, if I'm going it. in for brain surgery or if I'm going in for open heart surgery, I'm like, God damn it. This is, this might be the last thing I ever sign. You know, it's like, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty hardcore. Um, well, at this point I laugh with my friends. Like I have made my will four times Yeah, and yeah, I'm right. 33 years old. So, so there's nothing you can throw at me. That's <laughs> that serious. What is, what was the recovery like after, after having that kind of surgery? You know, like, is there, do you have to do PT or is it, you know, they just, they just you know, fold down the flap, take out the brain, put the flap back up and sew you up and go, all right, you're on your way. <laughs> have fun. Um, it was absolute hell on earth. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, ha I have to do a huge shout out, even though I know, you know, my poor grandmother right now, she's suffering with dementia. She's not going to see it. But my my grandmother and my grandfather, you know, top, top people in the world because they helped me all through this. They took me to appointments over in Halifax. They took me, you know, to appointments here in Charlottetown. If I needed any drugs, they, you know, took me into their house to live for almost a year for mm -hmm. the recovery period. But, you know, it was 
painkillers. It was nerve uh, blockers. It was so many pills constantly. And if you didn't take them, the pain was just unbelievable. I couldn't feel the top of my head for six months. Oh, uh, yeah. Whoa. Man, brain surgery is... It is, yeah. I mean, I can wrap my head around heart. I can even wrap my head around heart surgery. You can. Yeah, but brain surgery now. It's even just, it's just, it's just fascinating that we have any fucking clue. Yeah. The heart, it's like, you know, there's attachments. There's like, it's like this goes here and it leads to this. Place. I mean, the heart's far more simple. Like you can see yeah, it. The like heart's you can far, see it far more. more simple than the yeah. brain. You can see it more. You know, it's crazy. You know, it's more like looking yeah. at a motorcycle than yeah. looking at a car. Like you see a car, you can't really see anything. You look at a motorcycle, you can go, okay, I see the pipes. I see where everything's yeah. going. The brain is like, I don't like the thing that scares it goes so me, deep. The thing that scares, <laughs> the thing that so scares me about it is that like I just built a computer a couple weeks ago. I mean, it does make me and, think about that. And you have like, you know, you got yeah. you have a bunch of components in it. And yeah. the motherboard is really like a brain. Like it, I mean, it well, is computers in the and most, brains are basically like the same. Yeah. it's in the in the most like elementary version of it. Mm-hmm. And the crazy thing is like when you take a screwdriver and you're screwing these these pieces together and you're you're performing this like computer brain operation. And then you like slap all the pieces together and put the case together and seal it up. And if you if you made a mistake, you press the power button. Yeah, dude, the anxiety yeah. you get pressing that power button to turn it back on. And like, it's really, I mean, at the end of the day, worst case scenario, you you ruin a couple parts. Yeah, and you just buy some new ones. Do you think the, I could not imagine yeah. sealing a brain up as a brain yeah. surgeon? And, and and going cool. And, we fixed like all the drivers are installed and the latest versions yeah. are updated. And, like, somebody pressed good to go. Somebody press Daniel's power button. See if he turns <laughs> on was, right. But like also, you don't have that immediate like yeah. um, validation of whether you did worked or not. Yeah, you you're like, like you just gotta let Daniel recover for <laughs> yeah, a fucking yeah. year. Yeah, and hopefully he's yeah. good. No, I mean, did like did the surgery help? Like you know, after the after the surgery, after you recovered, were you you know, did you feel like a million bucks or like what, what was the state of your epilepsy after that? Um, it, it certainly helped with my seizures. Like my, my seizures were like, I would say 95% gone. Oh, wow. But oh, the wow. thing is my, my memory was terrible. Like my oh. culinary career was done. It oh, was no. gone. And I was pissed. I was it's like you have something in front of you that, and believe me, I don't blame the doctors. I don't blame anybody for this, but it's it's like you have the magic button that's going to fix your whole life and it's going to save your career and it's going to do everything and you push it and then you come out the other side and it's like, holy fuck, everything's gone. Because I was doing interviews for uh, jobs and I was not getting them. I couldn't remember lists of things. I couldn't remember places that I worked. I couldn't remember people's names. I couldn't remember people's faces. I I felt like so stupid. And I was just, okay, this is my life now. What am I going to do? So is that a, is that a, is it a symptom of, of memory issue that in terms of like getting somebody to take a chance on you is very difficult. Like if you were like, if somebody, if you snapped your fingers and you found yourself in a kitchen, would the memory issues prov- like uh, uh, prevent you from 
you know, doing, doing, doing the job or is it the process of, you know, getting somebody to give you a job with all the things that, you know, come along with that whole process of like, you know, having a resume and writing things and being able to talk about your experience and everything. Like, is it more so that part or is it the actual doing of the job that your memory issues get in the way of? Um, looking back on things now, it's learning to adapt with things. The culinary profession is not a profession that is adaptive to people who have any kind of disability. Mm-hmm. You need to work on the fly. There's people behind you, get this done, get this done, yelling at you, screaming at you, do it now, do it now. I can't work on that anymore. I used to be able to, mm. but I need to be able to pace myself and say, okay, yeah, this is done now. Uh, I, I need to have a computer in front of me or a list or something. I will never, ever be able to remember a list of 10 items again. I mm. lose things constantly. I leave glasses all over the place. I, If I leave my phone somewhere, I'm done. My phone is an extension of me. Mm. I have lists in my phone, shopping lists, uh, things of what I'm going to do each day, my calendar, my whatever. That's not a culinary career. That is an office job, which is what I do now. <laughs> what what did it look like after the surgery and you noticed the memory issues? Was that a conversation that you had with doctors? Did they were they able to give you any explanation of like, yeah, like we might we may have, you know, done this and that caused that or was it just kind of like shrug your shoulders? That's just that's just that's just what happens with brain course. surgery. Yeah. No, they, they were very helpful. They they basically said, you know, it, it's different with everybody. Everybody kind of reacts to the surgery different ways, you know, give it a little while. Sometimes, you know, it comes back gradually. Sometimes it comes back quickly. And it it's definitely come back a lot better than it was, you know, at the first three months uh, after the surgery. I mean, there were certain letters of the alphabet I couldn't remember after the surgery. Wow. Yeah, wow. I mean, why, again, like just, you know, don't want to like keep repeating myself, but it just, it just boggles my mind that we're, we're able to even do a brain surgery the way that we do it. And, and, and you come out, you know, not, mush. uh, not, yeah, not just like a, a just mush. Like it's, it, um, it's, uh, it just, it, it, it's, it's staggering. Where are you at now? I mean, you, you said you work an office job now. Like, are you like, what is, what is Daniel's day to day now dealing with? Uh, multifocal epilepsy. So right now in 2016, I actually, um, I was fired actually from a job over in Halifax. I was working a restaurant job and uh, they found out that I had epilepsy and they fired me. So I switched careers altogether and I'm now paralegal. So um, I, I, I knew that job though would be a job where I, I'd have a computer in front of me. I could have lists of things to do. Um, you know, I could have post-it notes all over my desk if I needed to, it wouldn't be as stressful of a job in a kitchen. Mm. I mean, it's horrendous that that had to happen for me to make that switch, but it was also, I was holding on to a career. I mean, it was a dream career for me as a kid, but it wasn't a career that was serving me anymore. Mm. It was a career that was constantly getting in my way. Were you inspired to be a paralegal because of the super illegal nature of your firing? 
Um, it, it was partially that, and it was something that I've always, I've had a bit of a legal inspiration ever since I was a kid, really, because I hate people who are bullies. I hate people who think that they can get one over on somebody else by doing bad things. And I have had the great pleasure in doing this career for almost seven or eight years now Ooh. by helping people with that. And I love well, it. Yeah, well, awesome. I, yeah. I, I hope you like. I hope that with that statement, that you like you you still are happy with the fact that you've came on this show, considering Taylor's a bully. But like Brian and I, I probably, it's, I mean, two two v one. Like we, we probably it probably just comes all out in the yeah, water. At the least we up. we name and shame our bullies. That's right. Um, I, my passion, guys. I, I want can, you, can you can you can you just let me have what I love to do? Okay, I okay, want- okay, man. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Stop okay, bullying, man. <laughs> I want I wanted shit. to ask Daniel. Um, it sounds one thing that's been really striking about this <laughs> conversation to me is that is that um, other than the strikes that Taylor has taken against me by punching me <laughs> multiple times, Jesus but another Christ. thing I find uh, striking about this conversation is um, is it sounds like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like this is like the part of your journey in dealing with epilepsy has been really around like managing the treatment side of things and the, and the, the challenges that have come up because of treatments. Um, you mentioned, you know, the challenges that you face with the different types of medications and then, you know, the challenges that you face coming out of, um, surgery and, and maybe your expectations or understandings of how the treatments would work and then what actually happened in reality. And I'm curious, like from your perspective, um, and like the story that you sort of tell yourself about your life, like what, what does your over overall experience with the healthcare system and treatments of your epilepsy, what does that story look like to you? Um, I think what it looks like to me is that I consider myself very lucky for all of the things that have happened to me and the people that I've met, but I also know in certain situations I wasn't lucky and other people are even unluckier than I am. They don't have people to advocate for them. They are in situations where they can't even advocate for themselves. They go into emergency rooms where they can't even speak and can't advocate on their own. Or, and have epilepsy and aren't believed when they are asking for drugs for treatment of epilepsy, which has happened to me. They go to government officials and ask for programs and are denied, you know, different things like that. And the way that I try and use my story or my experiences is basically as a roadmap for other people to either learn from or take that and use it for themselves because Mm -hmm. up until a couple of years ago I was extremely ashamed of all of the stuff that I've Mm. either had to access as programs or my whole story and I didn't tell it to anybody except close friends and family Mm. and I think it was a disservice that I didn't do that yeah What, what would you say is the biggest thing that epilepsy has taken away from you um it's taken away my ability to act on my own for a lot of things. I require other people to take me places. I require other people to, you know, go into town to get groceries, to, you know, all of that stuff. It's 
taken away my ability to be my own person, especially in a small place. Not in Toronto. Toronto, you can hop on the subway, you can hop in a cab, you can hop anywhere. Mm. In a small in the Maritimes, cabs are very expensive. Transit's very expensive. All of that stuff hugely expensive for people who are paying thousands and thousands of dollars per month for medication. Mm. What would you say is the biggest thing that epilepsy has given you? Um, it's given me a network of friends that I never had before. Like um, the people who I volunteer with for the Epilepsy Association of the Maritimes, um, they all have the same experiences that I do, whether it be mothers whose sons have epilepsy or children who have epilepsy or, you know, uh, Carla McCausland is somebody who I met over here on PEI. We both volunteer with the Epilepsy Association. Her son has epilepsy. And the way that she found me was her son was on the internet in a chat room with uh, myself and a couple other people who all had surgeries over in Halifax. And he said, oh, my God, Mom, you should talk to this guy. He wants to be a volunteer with the Epilepsy Association, too. And we talked for six months through the pandemic about medication for epilepsy, government programs for how to get cheaper medication and all that stuff. And finally, we got the Epilepsy Association to start up uh, programming over here. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. Mm. That's the grassroots stuff that mm. happens when you you just chat to people who have like-minded things. Mm -hmm. It's great. Mm. Sounds like a real like sense of of purpose and meaning that, mm -hmm. that has created for you. Absolutely. Well, Daniel, um, I got to say thank you, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to um, to you know being up for coming on a show like this. And you know, you just said that it was only a couple of years ago that you were really ashamed and and it was, this wasn't something you'd be talking about. And now you're on a podcast expressing this to thousands of people across the world. So. Thank you for having the courage to do that and to sharing your story. And, uh, and yeah, this has been a real treat. Thank you so much. Yes. And uh, once again, thank you guys all for, you know, having a podcast like this. And it really means a lot to me to be able to get this message out there. And if there's one thing that I would say to anybody uh, who is chatting to anybody with somebody with an, with an invisible illness or a long-term illness is don't ever write them off. They could give you more information and more life experience than you would ever know. Well, thank Amazing. you for that. Thanks, Thanks so much. Well, there you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, we are coming at you Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And if you are a fan of the podcast and you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do that. First of all, you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading them. You can simply rate the podcast on the Spotify mobile app, if that's where you're listening. Or if you want to join the conversation, hop on over to our Discord. The link is in the show notes of this episode. And uh, we have a lovely little community over there of sickos and non-sickos all hanging out, chatting. And uh, hey, you could even help produce the podcast over there if you want. You can, again, find that link in the show notes below. Sick Boy Podcast is produced and co-hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and Brian Stever. The show is managed by Jeffrey Lonis over at Talent Bureau. 
The sound design of this episode is brought to you by Donovan the CPAP Morgan. And of course, the theme music is from the band Take Part. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.